I'm going to stick to the script. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I didn't write it, so if you don't like it, you got to take it up with the author. <laughs> All right. Let's get started, everyone. I think the others that are not here today melted on their way. That's the only thing that I can think to explain because... It is absolutely hellacious out there in terms of heat. Um, so welcome. We do this every week. If you're new, if you're returning, if you want to stay current with us, <clears throat> I record here and we put it up, video and audio, each week. It's on my website, jmsmith.org. The cool thing is, as we're doing this, I mean, I've mentioned this a lot, but I want to let you know so you can tell other people, mainly, is... Every week when we record, put the video up, it stays up. So right now, the entire book of Exodus is available for free to stream on your phone, to listen to in your car, chapter by chapter through the entire book of Exodus in 30-minute chunks. And we're only a few chapters away from the entire book of Leviticus being available. And then in the fall, we're going to start with, any guesses? Numbers, that's right. So the goal is... That and, and we didn't we didn't have the um, the, the recording and, and uh, uploading and podcast stuff for Genesis, but I have a lot of Genesis as well. So I'm going to try to find a way to put those online too. But the idea is that we're building, and you're part of this. We're building a library of audio video resources that are that are part of Disciple Dojo, my my uh, ministry, that you guys are on the ground floor of. So if you like it. You can tell your friends, your coworker, hey, what's that thing you go to every week? Oh, here's the link to it. Send them a link in an email. Send it to them on social media. Tell them to go on their phone, look it up. And then that's how we can spread the word. Now, we can't spread the food. They've got to come here. You guys on the video, you have to come here if you want the food. If you want this, see, look, delicious spread, right? So the food, you got to come here to get. And that's thanks to Ruth Chris and their generosity and Jeff Conway. But the teaching can go worldwide, and that's the beauty of this. And I actually have heard from people who listen to this podcast in other countries, which blows my mind. Um, so keep that in mind, and know that everything you say is on film for the whole world to hear, so no dumb questions. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we're in Leviticus. We're in chapter 21. Now, Leviticus 8, uh, 17 particularly 18, 19, and 20, were the heart of what's called the Holiness Code. And we've looked at that over the past few weeks. Catch the video or the audio if you want to catch up on it. Now we're moving into this section of Leviticus 21 through 24. And this section mostly concerns holy things and holy times. So it's going to be about holy things, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the people that serve in the tabernacle, uh, the name of God itself. And then it's going to be about holy times. So the high holidays, the seasonal worship. So there's going to be a lot of that stuff, but that's the loose thing that organizes this section. After we've moved from the heart of the holiness code, now we're moving back out to the realm of the sacrificial in a lot of ways, the realm of worship. So we've started in worship. Leviticus has started in worship with the sacrifices and the rules for uh, dietary needs. And then it's kind of expanded out into the people and their ethics in general. And then it reaches its high point in Leviticus 19, which is kind of like the extrapolation of the Ten Commandments. 
to what kind of people Israel is going to be. And then it comes back in and sort of starts to focus back into the families and to the issues of sexuality and worship that we saw last week. And then back down to the focus on the tabernacle and what goes on in the tabernacle. So remember, as we look at this section, we're going to look at these. This is going to be in your footnote or in your Bible. It's probably headed titled something like rules for priests. But this is going to be the stipulations that the priests have to obey. Now, remember what we said about last week, Leviticus, this part of Israel's history is boot camp. Or no, those of you that have been in the service, I haven't, but I've seen, had enough friends who've served, family that have served, and we've all seen movies of boot camp. Even if you watched Gomer Pyle growing up, you remember boot camp is when it's really tough. You don't make your bed, you're in trouble. Chewing gum, you're in trouble. Your hair's not neat, you're in trouble. Your shoes aren't shined. You're little things that don't seemingly matter, right? There's a war going on. Why does it? Why do you care if I make my bed? There's a war going on. Why do you care if my shoes are shiny? I'm about to walk through mud and trenches and grime and guts and everything, right? But there's a reason for that because the whole process of boot camp is is an organization, in this case the military, trying to instill something deeper than the uh, particular things that are being done. It's deeper than making the bed. It's deeper than shining the shoes. It's rewiring the brain of the soldiers to have a deeper emphasis on things like discipline, on regularity, on methodical uh, attention to detail. Because those things, when the heat of battle comes, in theory, you have to be able to do a certain things without thinking twice. You have to be able to respond to orders on the fly. You have to be able to carry out your orders to the detail, to the letter, or else people could die. Right? So that's in theory what's going on behind a kind of a boot camp situation. Well, it's not a perfect parallel, but it is something of a parallel to think about with God's people, the priesthood and the tabernacle. Because as you're going to see when we get to the book of Numbers this fall, the tabernacle is the head of the army. Israel doesn't march out without the tabernacle and the priests and the Levites leading the way. With the Ark of the Covenant being the thing that literally they follow into battle. And all of Israel as a nation are camped around the tabernacle as an army. So there are some similarities, and it is a metaphor that's helpful in thinking about when we read the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus, and particularly these sections of the Torah, why is God so harsh? Why is He so harsh with His punishments? Why is He so harsh with His attention to detail? Why is He so meticulous about them observing all these things? Is it because that's what we're supposed to try and do today? No, it's not. And there's a reason for it. It has to do with the whole concept of covenant. But at the time, it's absolutely crucial because he's forming his people, his army, literally at the time they're his army, but also spiritually in the realm of the universal, the army of God's people. And even in the New Testament, even in Revelation, they're likened to an army. Even Jesus likens followers of his to people in the army at times. So it's not a completely invalid metaphor. They're being instilled deeper lessons within the community that will extend to the whole nation. And eventually, remember God's plan? Through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be brought back to knowledge of God. Never lose track of that. That's the big picture of the Old Testament. That's the, the horse that you cannot beat to death enough because it needs to be ingrained in us. God is always preparing his people to be his vehicle through which all the nations of the earth come to covenant with him. So it's important to keep that in mind. So the priesthood then is like the epicenter of that. 
The priesthood, the, the, the tabernacle, is the little mini Mount Sinai that follows God's, or the, no, it doesn't follow God's people, excuse me, that God's people follow where it leads. So this little mini Mount Sinai, which is what the tabernacle is, the, the layers that correspond, the inward concentric rings of holiness, denote the levels of Mount Sinai as you get towards the top. So the summit of Mount Sinai where there's fire and smoke and you can't see God, but you're standing in his presence and only Moses could go and only when God commanded, that's the equivalent of the inside of the Holy of Holies where there's smoke, where there's fire of the incense, where God's literal presence dwells, where only one person who's called can go and only once a year. And then further down the mountain, the elders of Israel or the the Levites and the priests, and then further out of the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites work, and then to the outer courts where the people can come, which is like the base of the mountain where the people... So you see the imagery that's going on. And this is crucial for understanding it, so that's why I'm harping on it. So the priests then occupy a particular role in the tabernacle. They are the ones who operate it. They are the ones who keep it going. So there's certain procedures and there's certain things that the priests have to do that not everybody else has to do. And this is similar. One example, one of the commentators that I was reading, I forgot which one, um, you know, in his commentary on Leviticus, he, he drew a parallel. He says, one way to think about it is you go to an operating room, to the OR room. Like I just had surgery a few weeks ago. When you go in the hospital door, the nursing staff up front, yeah, they probably wash their hands a good bit. Eh, kind of important, you know. They're shaking hands with a lot of people. They're using pins and filling out forms that people that are sick have used. So they're getting some germs, but they're not like fanatical about it. You go back into where the nurses are, the nursing station. They're much cleaner. They're washing their hands more regularly. They're using um, sterile things, right? They're going to come in. They had to shave my knee for my knee surgery. They had to shave the hair. So I had one shaved leg and one normal dude hairy leg. Even the razor, that even the electric razor, was in its own hermetically sealed pouch that the nurse opened it up, and there's like this Lady Vic razor thing that she used to shave my leg. Felt real manly. But even that was sealed off. You go in deeper to the OR when they actually cart you back where they're doing the surgery, where they're cutting you open or sticking things in you. They are fanatical about cleanliness. They scrub. They wash. They have other people put the gloves on. Other people put their clothes on. Other people hand them the tools. You don't leave the room and then just walk back in. Right? There's this whole decontamination process that takes place in the art. Why? Because life and death is taking place in there. And that has to be sealed off from these outside contaminating forces. Well, again... Not a perfect analogy, but a pretty darn good one for thinking about the role of the priest and then the tabernacle. The Levites have to be ceremonially clean. The priests who are among the Levites from the tribe, from the descendants of Aaron, they have to be even more sacrificially clean, even more ritually clean. And the high priest has to be the utmost in terms of cleanliness and holiness. So that gives you an idea of how to think about this priesthood. So there are going to be things that the people of Israel can do that the Levites, the priests, or the high priest can't. When it comes to things like family, when it comes to things like marriage, who can marry who, when it comes to things like mourning rituals, where you actually come in contact with dead bodies, the most defiling thing in all of Israel's theology, because it symbolized vividly the effects of sin, which is death. So all of those things, the priests are concentrically and increasingly isolated from. Why? 
because they stand in the presence of God. They're the surgeon in the OR room. They're the nurses in the OR room. They're the ones who are standing between life and death, theologically, of the people of Israel. So the priesthood has to live by a different set of rules than everybody else. So that may help you give some ideas as we read this section. Chapter 21, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for close relatives such as his mother or father, his son or daughter, his brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since she has no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him only by marriage and so defile himself. This is talking about burying. We, we live in a world that you don't bury your dead. I mean, you don't. The, 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 you, the person, the authorities come. They take the body. The funeral home prepares the body. People put it in a casket. They put makeup on it. They dress it nice. We see something that looks like the corpse that's been treated, and then it gets lowered into the ground in a very sanitary coffin. It's made to look pretty. Everything possible to disguise what the reality of that thing is, which is there is a dead human being in the image of God that no longer bears God's image because his life or her life is now gone. That's a shocking thing. However, in the world of Israel, that was your normal thing that you did when your family, your relatives died. You prepared the body. You anointed the body. You washed the body. You buried the body. So you would become defiled. Morally defiled? No. We've already talked about Check the study previous lessons if you want to know the difference. Not morally defiled. Not sinful to do this. It's ritually contaminating, ritually unclean. It prevents you from then just going back into worship in the tabernacle. So it's a defiling aspect. It's a cleanliness aspect in terms of theology and, and holiness and separation. We have a sort of a hard time separating sin from bad or evil. But in this case, it's the effects of sin and the symbolic nature of what defilement is. So God's saying the priests are not to do that unless it's one of their closest relatives in which it would be their duty to perform that. And so even in this, this, this uh, sealed off, protected, sanctified environment, relationship of family still comes before ceremonial cleanliness. The law about cleanliness is still superseded by the greater commandment, which in this case is honoring your father and your mother or your close relative, caring for the dead. So the priests are allowed to do that. And you see that throughout Torah. It's not like modern law where it's just, boom, here's the law. If you break it in any way, shape, or form, you're done. No, there is leeway that God allows because he allows for circumstances. He allows for um, the greater and the lesser. The law sometimes need to be weighed. Sometimes you have a choice and you can't do anything without breaking one of the commandments letter for letter. And so there are times when some commandments supersede other commandments. And this is part of why the Jewish sages and the rabbis had such volumes and volumes of debating and legal back and forth on the law and the nature of the law. That's why the guys came up to Jesus and they asked him about what's the greatest commandment. Or Jesus talked about the Pharisees and he said, you, you do the minor things, but you miss the heavier things, the weightier things of the law. So even Jesus himself knew there are things that are really, really, really important in the law. 
and there are things that are of less importance than those things in the law. And sometimes they will be in conflict. So here, relationship supersedes the letter of the law in terms of a priest not defiling himself. And so it goes on then to say the priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beards or cut their bodies. And again, as you saw a few weeks ago, this almost definitely are uh, ways that the ancient pagans that Israel surrounded by, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the other ancient Near Eastern people, this is the ways that they would mourn the dead. They would mourn the dead in, in, in uh, I can't remember exactly which place it was. I want to say it's like somewhere in the Phoenicia area, Hittite area, but that may be wrong. It may be Egypt. But regardless, if you're really curious, I'll look it up for you. But the hair, your hair, was seen as in some way containing your life essence because it was the only part of you that never stops growing. And even after you die for a short time, hair would continue to grow. I mean, not for a long time, but for a certain period. And so for the ancients, some of the ancients, your hair was very important ritualistically. That's why it was considered in some cultures, if you were bald, <laughs> well, that means that you're less potent or less vigorous or less, you know, whatever. Um, sorry, guys. I got a little spot, too, so I'll be with you soon. But your hair was seen as transmitting or in some way encapsulating your life force, your ka, your spirit, your essence. So when someone would die, or if you wanted to stand in, or if you wanted to intercede for someone, sometimes it would involve the cutting or the shaving or the taking of your hair and doing something with it, either offering it somewhere, placing it in memorial somewhere, something, different practices. So in this way, Israel's priesthood was prevented from that. There will be no worship of the dead. There will be no communion with the dead. You will not try to seek guidance or wisdom from the dead. This was normal life in Israel's ancient culture that they were surrounded by. Normal. It was normal. There's a whole Egyptian book of the dead. It's all they knew. You commune with the dead. That's what wizards or sorcerers or spiritists or mediums or whatever you want to call it, that's what they do. They, they seek the dead. They commune with the spirits. They get a message from beyond the grave, from the underworld, from like Moloch, the god of the underworld that we've looked at, from Chemosh, from a few others. And then they base their life on that. God absolutely, categorically, in, in every way, shape, and form, forbids that. Absolutely forbids it. And so this, in particularly of the priests. So that's what the, uh, these guidelines are meant to reinforce. Then he goes on to say, verse 7, or verse 6, excuse me. They must, the priests, they must be holy to their God, must not profane the name, Yahweh, the name of their God. Because they present the offerings made to Yahweh by fire. The food of their God, they are to be holy. The meal, the sacrament, the sacrifice is a communion fellowship meal. Now, God says later in the prophets, do I need the blood of bulls and goats? Do I need the meat of your sacrifices or the bread? No, I created all this. I don't need this. This is not my food. You're not doing me any favors by bringing me this food. This is a meal that we are having. And the meal is, is the biggest or the most glaring means of showing fellowship in the ancient world. Sharing a meal with someone is the height of intimacy other than maybe sex. Right? That, that's a little more intimate. We will not be practicing any of that in this year. But we will share a meal every week. And that's part of the, the biblical Old Testament and New Testament. Sharing a meal is an intimate thing and it connotes fellowship. 
It connotes relationship. And so that's what the offerings, that's what the priests are doing. They are facilitating. They are waiters or butlers or servants at the table of God that God prepares for his guests, Israel, in hopes that then Israel, through their own relationship with him, will then show the world, will then be the priests to the world, will set the table for the world's banquet with God. You see why these banquet imagery was so popular with Jesus? Is it starting to make sense, all these images that you see, Old Testament and New Testament? It's, it's this, this it, there's so much in that, but we got to move on. So, then he goes on to say, verse 7, They must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorced from their husbands, because priests are to be holy to their God. Regard them as holy, because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy, because I, the Lord, am holy. I, who make you holy. So the holiness of the priests is the holiness of God transmitted or, 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 or shined into the realm of the human. And so humanity, Israel, is to safeguard the holiness of their priests, the separateness of their priests, with, with, with the utmost concern because it's a reflection of the holiness of God. Yeah, so it goes on to talk about marriage. Why can't they marry a prostitute or someone's divorced? The main reason is because the priesthood in Israel was not determined by kings. They were not appointed by prophets. The priesthood in Israel was hereditary. It was passed down generation to generation. Family line. So in order to uphold and preserve that, the family line had to be without a doubt 100% undefiled in terms of heredity. So if a woman was known as a, either a prostitute, could be a temple prostitute from the Canaanite uh, milieu, could it be just a normal prostitute trying to survive, whatever, or she was divorced, there could be legitimate question about offspring that were produced in the line of this priest. And so this is ruling it out. Now, is this saying that women who are divorced are automatically damaged goods? Are prostitutes damaged goods? Absolutely not. How do we know that? Because what Jesus said? Actually, no, not even because of what Jesus said, although he did go out of his way to hang out with prostitutes and women with sexually scandalous lives. No, in the Old Testament, who's the one, in, the one woman from the Canaanites that's going to get literally saved, literally and spiritually? Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. Who are the women that are going to be in the line of Jesus, the messianic line of King David? Going to be people like Rahab? Going to be people like Tamar? Going to be people like Bathsheba? Going to be people like Mary? Wasn't a prostitute, wasn't divorced, but there was some scandal around this pregnancy out of wedlock. So even in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see that. So it's not saying that divorced women or even women that are prostitutes are irredeemable, damaged goods. None of that stuff that people would just jump on this and attack it. A modern feminist reading would eviscerate this text as being patriarchal and, and coming from a male-dominated perspective. Absolutely not. That just means they don't really know Scripture and the rest of the story. So what's going on is it's protecting lineage of the priest because the priesthood is hereditary and has to be traced then it goes on to say, verse 9, if a priest's daughter, if a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father. She must be burned in the fire. Commentators are divided on this means killed by burning, or most seem to think this means cremation after she's uh, put to death for prostitution, but her becoming a prostitute uh, for the, 
the, the sin itself, put to death, and then her body is cremated, meaning you're cut off from your family. Um, again, is the, does this apply to every Israelite? No. The family of the priest was held to a higher standard than the other families. This is important. It has implications uh, in terms of the New Testament that we may have to pick up next week. It goes on, verse 10. The high priest, the one among his brothers who has the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, the high priest, must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. It's talking about when mourning. These are mourning rituals. Like, like grieving, not early mourning, but like grieving rituals. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean, even for his father or mother, nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it, because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the Lord. This is for the high priest. The high priest had the highest standards of them all. The high priest, the one person who had been anointed by the pouring of oil. This goes back to the episode that happened with Aaron's two sons. The one back in chapter 10, they offered the strange, unauthorized fire. Fire from the altar that had just consumed the sacrifices, consumed Aaron's sons. And what did God tell Aaron to do? Don't let your hair get unkempt. Don't tear your clothes. Be quiet. Do not leave the sanctuary to bury the dead. You have been anointed as the high priest. You have a higher calling. You have a harder calling in this case. You cannot do the duties of a father and bury your son. You cannot do the duties of a husband, bury your wife. You cannot because you have something that's even more important of a role than that. There's only one person in all of Israel at one time. So high, the higher the level of access to God, uh, God's things, God's holy things, the higher level of authority, the higher the uh, punishment for disobedience. Or as Spider-Man learned, greater power comes greater responsibility, right? Theology of Peter Parker. So, then he goes on verse 13, speaking of the high priest, the woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people. So the high priest only. Widows, divorced women were allowed to be married. Even prostitutes, you were allowed to marry them. It's an Israelite. Hosea is going to be commanded to by God. He's a prophet, not a priest. But for the high priest, not only could you not marry a prostitute, not only could you not marry a, a divorced woman, you couldn't marry a widow. For the high priest, the marriage was to be to a virgin from his own people. The, pre, the high priestly family was to be held to the most strict family standards that there are in Israel because they were a living symbol of the purity and the holiness of God. Is this, is this, call, is this advice for today's preacher's kids? Not necessarily. I am one. Um, you know, is, it, is this binding on modern believers? Not by letter. Is the spirit of this binding on modern believers? Well, Jesus' brother, James, wrote a book called James. It's really called Jacob because that's his name, Jacob. James, James is a later English weird version. His name's Jacob. Jesus' brother Jacob wrote a book called Jacob. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, guys, listen, not all of you should strive to be teachers. Those of you who are teach, those of us who teach will be judged more strictly, will be held to a higher standard. 
So it's a New Testament concept as well. The vehicle by which it's exercised, the actual means, you know, are, are, are preachers' daughters who go wild sexually or they stoned and burned to death, you know, their bodies burned. No, there would not be very many preacher's daughters if that were the case. The stereotypes are true. Do, you know, clergy people have to obey these in terms of marrying a virgin from their own people? This, no, that's a category distinction. We're in the new covenant and there are things that have changed. But the underlying theology, the underlying essence of what these verses are teaching are not about ethnical or eth- yeah, ethnical purity. They're not about intermarriage and bloodlines. They're not about damaged goods and who you can and can't marry in general. No, these are about preserving the holiness of God at a time when his holiness was most clearly reflected by a physical, tangible system that was geographically located in a particular place among a particular people. We do not live under that covenant. So we have to do a little more work when we read these passages and go, what is the underlying principle? And how then do we extrapolate that to our situation? One of the things, um, we're going to finish this chapter next week because we're out of time and there's a, there's a really cool lesson at the end of this in terms of the priest. So we'll come back to it. One of the things that I pull from this personally as a teacher of scripture and reading Jacob slash James chapter 3 verse 1 is that the more you're given by God the more you're called by God we're all called by God remember remember all of Israel were called to be a nation or kingdom of priests all of Israel were called in the general sense to be priests to God to the outside nations so it's not like all Israel were neatly subdivided and you got some that had to worry about God stuff and the others that just worried about real life Every Israelite had a priestly calling, but some were called vocationally to the priesthood, which meant that they were excluded from the other means of making a living. God still does that, even in the New Testament. Paul writes about it. Um, The authors of the Didache, which is early Christian writing after the New Testament, they write about it. They talk about it. God still calls people to vocational ministry. There's some churches that believe that every pastor should also be a full-time worker normal person and that just preaches in addition. God may call some people to do that. He called Paul to make tents in order to to provide for his teaching. But God doesn't call everybody because Paul himself said, no, pay your teachers because they shouldn't have to labor in the fields and then come labor in your fields spiritually. So there is a separation that God does call some people vocationally and those that he calls vocationally should be supported financially or materially by the people that they minister to Provided they are ministering to them and not just fleecing them for money. We're not talking about prosperity heresy. We're talking about real preachers and teachers and pastors and evangelists, not frauds. But those who are called to vocational ministry do have a higher standard that they will be held to. So preachers, when they're preaching, when they're giving a sermon, I'm going to end with this story. We're like one minute over. My dad was, uh, he's a preacher. I grew up as a preacher's family. Uh, his first church that he was officially the head pastor of was the one I was born into, literally. I was, he got the call. I was born like a month later. Small inner city church in Savannah, Georgia. And then we grew up in a series of churches in Georgia as they moved around. I was in probably college, and my dad was, we were talking about ministry. And my dad actually listens to this podcast, by the way, so shout out, dad. Uh, he said, we were talking one time, and I think we were talking about nerves or speaking or something. 
And this is after he'd been a preacher for maybe 15, 20 years. Preaching every Sunday, every Sunday, sometimes two, sometimes three sermons. And he said, you know, every morning, get up, go to church, get there before anybody else, park as far away from the building as I can. There are no pastor parking, no first lady parking at this church. Pastors are servants. There will never be that. That's a whole other issue. It's a pet peeve. But regardless, he said, get there, park, go in. Every morning for like 15 or 20 years, he would throw up. I, you know, we talk about it, and he said it was never, it wasn't the nerves of public speaking. It was, it always hit him that morning. I'm about to stand up, and I'm about to declare to dozens, maybe hundreds of people, words from God Almighty. If that doesn't make you nervous, if that doesn't make a preacher tremble to some degree at some level, then something's wrong. And it always stayed with it. It's a very powerful message, but it, it hit home. I mean, it, it drove home the fact of what the priesthood and the Old Testament, they were teachers of the people. That's what they were to do. They were to teach the people and minister the sacrifices. They were clergy. Well, in the New Covenant, the clergy, different format, different circumstances, but the underlying calling and thing is the same. So when you see preachers who flippantly spout off about whatever topic they want to talk about this week, whether it's Pokemon or politics. When you see preachers who just declare, the Lord told me this, the Lord's doing this, God said this the other day, God's telling me this about you. Man, they better be right. Because they are speaking on behalf of God. And that is a high call. That we can't afford to just take a flipper. So, we're out of time. We're three and a half minutes over by my watch. Have a great week. Thank you. I, I, I extend grace for three minutes. Um, have a great week. Next week we're going to pick back up in 21, and we're almost done with Leviticus. So we're going to finish it up by early fall, and then we're going to move into Numbers, which is uh, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. If you want some more food, it's still here. Otherwise, have a great week, and we'll see you next time.